Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we have an exciting podcast for you today. We'll be doing our first Oscar Rewind of the season on the year of film in 1973. So if you're familiar with these episodes, you know that we'll be talking about lots of movies today. And I think we are today more so in years past. Instead of just focusing on the Best Picture nominees, we'll be talking about those, plus a lot of the films that were nominated that year, including some of our personal favorites. So we have a lot to get to. We had a lot of listeners submit questions that had us up all night researching and figuring (laughs) out what happened this year. So I'm excited (laughs) to get to everything. Yeah, I am so excited to dive into this year, 1973. The 70s are my favorite decade in film. So this was just a really fun year for me to watch all of the Best Picture nominees, but also to look into other films from the period. So as a reminder, our Best Picture nominees for this year, The Sting was our winner. And then we had American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and A Touch of Class. And like you mentioned, we're doing things a little bit differently. So we're not going to be reviewing all five of these, going through each one like we normally do on these episodes. We're mixing it up. One of the reasons is I really didn't want to devote a lot of time to a touch of class. I don't know about you, (laughs) (laughs) but I feel like it'll be a fun way to, yeah, think a bit more about the other categories at the Oscars and maybe why some of our favorite films were shut out or not included. Mm -hmm. But looking at the Best Picture nominees, how do you feel about this group as a whole? I think overall it's pretty good. There is some variety, like we get Cries and Whispers, but Overall, we're getting top box office features of the year, which I think happened a lot more back then. And now movies just have changed so much or the idea of the business of it and making money. So a lot of these movies were highly praised. I mean, even A Touch of Class, which, yes, now is not the best film to have to rewatch, but everyone loved it. Like it was the comedy to see at the end of the year during award season and the exorcist the sting american graffiti all did so well so i think it's a great collection and we have the sting about the 30s american graffiti about the 60s so we have these touchstone basically period features about certain times which we'll get into the nostalgia factor of that too later on but i like how different these movies are too and we have the exorcist which was I think the first time we had such a horror film getting so many nominations. Yeah, I mean, this is technically the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture, among many other awards. It was nominated for 10 Oscars total and won two adapted screenplay and sound, which are both two great wins, I think, for the movie. But yeah, I mean, when we think about horror now, this was 50 years ago, and we still have not had many horror films that have gotten that level of acclaim or that sort of box office success that have really stood out as touchstones of the genre that have also hit with the Academy. I feel like that is so Mm -hmm. rare and it's one of the reasons why I think The Exorcist is one of the most important films of all time. But to yeah, to look at this list, I mean, I genuinely really like four of them, which is good, I think, if you're looking at a Best Picture lineup of five to have four that you think are really strong. I'm interested to talk about The Sting as a winner too, because I don't think it's a movie that people cite as 
one of the great winners of all time, especially in the 70s when you have movies like The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two that are like taking home Best Picture and that are really remembered for years to come. I feel like The Sting, its reputation is interesting and how it won. But Cries and Whispers being here, an international feature, a Bergman film that is a very, very tough watch. I think you can imagine now even audiences and members of the Academy, I don't think are brave enough today to nominate a movie as viscerally engaging as Cries and Whispers. I mean, this movie is, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it is a it is a knockout in terms of visual style, but also in the way that it makes you feel. And I don't see the Academy today going for that. And, and then American Graffiti, which is a nostalgia piece, but it's quite subversive in what it's doing. And I think it's much darker, I think, than people think of it. You know, I think it's it's thought of as this easy, breezy mood piece. It's an all-in-one night sort of high mm-hmm. school movie, but it is so much more than that. So, yeah, I think this is a great collection of nominees and films that are highly influential when you think about cinema history. Yeah, so you mentioned The Exorcist had 10 nominations. It won two. The Sting was also nominated for 10 Oscars and won seven. And then The Way We Were was the next highest with six nominations and two wins. And I think before we get into The Sting, just some fun facts about this actual ceremony. So I think one of the most memorable moments on this night, this is the year of the streaker. (laughs) But it's funny... Mainly because we saw a matter of life and death a couple days ago, and David Niven was the one announcing the award when this happened. And there was some a quote attached to it. I don't know if he actually said it, but I mean, the history behind this, the guy who did it, Robert Opal, was a gay rights activist, and he said he did it as a social comment. And there was this short EW article that I found that kind of summarized what happened in his life, but... I mean, yeah, this never happened again at the Oscars. They probably, like other incidents in recent history, you know, cracked down on things like this happening. But this was also Katherine Hepburn's first Oscars appearance, first and only, to present the Irving G. Thalberg Award to her friend, Lawrence Weingarten. But it was funny, you know, she even like quoted on this at the time. She said, I'm living proof that a person can wait 41 years to be unselfish. <laughs> Classic Katherine Hepburn humor there. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into wins, but this also provided not only the youngest winner still to date with Tatum O'Neill, but the largest age gap between two winners with Tatum being 10 at the time and John Houseman at 71. And I think it's safe to say that we're not going to be mentioning the paper chase later on, I don't think. It's funny that the paper connection here, but I was not a big fan of the paper chase. I don't really think he should have won, but we had a few winners being like of their time wins this year. And I think John Houseman was one of them. Yeah, no, I do not have. So when we get to our top five picks for what we would nominate for best picture from 1973, no, I do not have the paper chase on my list. I might have another paper movie. We will see. But yeah, John Houseman's win, I personally would have gone with Jason Miller, of course, for The Exorcist, Justice for Father Karras. Mm-hmm. Tatum O'Neill, I also just want to throw out that I think she's a lead. I would say so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the lead of the movie. I mean, I think even more so than Moe's necessarily. So much of that movie is about, it's a commentary on changing attitudes toward 
children and toward childhood and she is not a supporting actress this feels very much like a holdover sort of standard from decades ago really at the oscars where if you if it was your first nomination or if you were a newcomer and you weren't necessarily considered a big star by a studio you were relegated to supporting and i feel like with child performances that's that tends to be what happens or with really young people they get frauded into supporting and i think this is one of the more egregious cases of that frankly Mm -hmm. but I do love her in the movie, and I'm happy that she has an Oscar for it. So, yeah, we can talk more about preferences of performances and things like that when we, when we talk about Paper Moon later. But yeah, let's get right into this sting. So we'll spend some time reviewing our Best Picture winner. The description here, set in the 1930s, this intricate caper deals with an ambitious, small-time crook and a veteran con man who seek revenge on a vicious crime lord who murdered one of their gang. This was directed by George Roy Hill and stars Robert Redford, Paul Newman, Robert Shaw, Eileen Brennan, Charles Durning, and more. This won seven Oscars. A major haul, I think, for what we are considering to be a really good group of Best Picture nominees. It won Best Picture, and Julia Phillips was the first female producer to win Best Picture. You need to read You'll Never Have Lunch in This Town Again, the Julia Phillips memoir. The book opens, actually, with her detailing her trip to the Oscars, where she has taken more drugs than I can imagine. Oh, my God. And she talks about the feeling of winning and how she her purse gets stuck. It's this, like, really wild (laughs) chain of events that she (laughs) recounts. And the whole book is, if you want a tell-all memoir... This is the one to read if you're interested in Hollywood history, especially history at this time. But yeah, I mean, even if you just read the introduction to this book, you will hear from her on her thoughts about winning Best Picture, how they weren't sure if it was going to be The Sting or The Exorcist. They felt like it was very much between those two. So highly recommend that. But Julia Phillips was one of the producers to win This also won Best Director, Original Screenplay, Film Editing, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Costume Design, and Original Score. Robert Redford was nominated for Best Actor. He was also nominated for Cinematography and Sound. So what did you think of The Sting? Had you seen this before? Was this your first time watching it? Did you like it? I'd seen this before. I really like The Sting. I think it's a fun period piece and... I think I just get wrapped up in the fun of everything. I think the dynamic between Redford and Newman on screen is undeniable. I love seeing them together, either with other actors, or I love the scene when they're in the car getting ready for the con, and Paul Newman is doing all these card tricks. I'm like, oh my god, I wish I could do that. Like, that's (laughs) just a fun moment. But they play off each other really well, and I mean, I have to mention... At least here, if I forget, Eileen Brennan and later in Paper Moon, we have Madeline Kahn. So the clue of the year is I'm living for (laughs) it. These two actresses are phenomenal. So I think her work here is great. And this movie feels like a crowd pleaser. And we can get into the Oscars in a second. I want to jump the gun. But I feel like not only does it keep you guessing until the very end, like you think you know how it's going to go and... There's a final con on the audience even. So I think it's really easy to revisit. You don't really have to think that much. You, It's enjoyable. It's funny. There's some drama. There's not really romance, but there are some of those elements too. I think it's really well written. 
And I think at number two for the box office, I mean, I think today it said it amounts to like over a billion dollars and The Exorcist was at number one. But it's one that audiences loved at the time and I think still love today. I really liked it. What did you think? I like it a lot too. I watched it for the first time a few years ago. It was actually early COVID. And I do really like it. I think it is, you're right, the case of a genuine crowd pleaser, which almost feels strange for the 70s. I think especially in comparison to the other movies that were nominated that year or other movies that came out and were popular in the 70s. Everything, I think, feels so risky during the time period in terms of storytelling, in terms of performance. And this, I think, feels... This feels different than that. I think it feels like a good old-fashioned movie, both in form and in subject matter. It also, though, has two of the most charismatic stars you could put in a movie like this in Newman and Redford. I think you're right, like, having Butch Cassidy and Sundance team up again was something that audiences probably really wanted to see and pairs well with nostalgia, both for them as a pair working together, but also the type of story that audiences had in the 30s and the 40s, even into the 50s. I do really love the Depression-era Chicago setting. Um, I think the recreation of that time in Chicago that they created was exactly what I would picture from that time period. What you said about the writing, too, I think the writing is really smart because it really does throw you off the scent in really smart ways. I think when you think you know what's happening next and you think you know what's what's coming and what our characters are going to do, who's ahead, who's behind, things like that in a caper film, this is different. It really does trick you in different ways. And I, I like how we see how unsuspecting Robert Shaw's character is almost the entire time. It's just, it's a really, really clever movie and... I feel like it's one of those things. I was reading Ebert's review, and one of the things he says, their methods are incredibly complex. It would take all of today's space to attempt to explain them. A lot of the fun in the movie is watching Hill and his screenwriter, David S. Ward, keep the plot straight. And I think that's that's true. It's a really, really complex screenplay, but I don't think it loses you. I feel like it's still very easy to follow and it's just fun to watch the movie and just get swept up in it and feel tricked in the same mm-hmm. way i like that yeah i think coming off of casablanca and all of the depths and layers that we talked about there this is a very different kind of film but i still love it as a best picture winner and i think some of those elements that it uses to take us back to the depression the fact that this story was inspired by real life con men But then also the score, the music, definitely the melody of The Entertainer by Scott Joplin and that ragtime sound. It's just even something that I associate with this movie and the time like and vice versa. So I think that's another element that audiences would have liked or at least I would have. It's very, very catchy. I don't know. I like how it also the screenplay is sort of broken down episodically into different sections. Mm -hmm. I usually don't like when we have titles like that in movies. I find them kind of unnecessary. But here, I actually think it's fun. Like, it's a fun way to describe where they are in the con, like in the grand scheme of things, like where they are at each level, I think Mm -hmm. is really smart. I also do like the fact that this movie is not... Like, yes, it does have violence. Like, we see characters getting shot, and it has that sort of grit to it. 
but it's funny and it's enjoyable to watch these characters just interact with each other and play off of each other and that I think is is even more of the draw than what you would typically expect I think from a crime or caper movie it doesn't Mm -hmm. lose the fun there in fact it I think accentuates it and makes it the core of the the film yeah not being so dark is I think something that helped elevate it in terms of awards too like we have the exorcist which is very much the opposite and as you're talking about violence and caper and all of these things that are usually in darker films this does kind of veer from that pretty drastically so I think in that way too is why it's such a crowd pleaser of course yeah no it's it does I think completely makes sense it wouldn't be my pick for the winner of the year for best picture but I absolutely understand why people would want to vote for it and we did get some twitter questions about the sting so we can answer those here Andrew Carden asked what did Redford really deserve his best actor nomination for the sting or the way we were what do you think this will also be a perfect time to talk about the way we were since I know you watched that for the first time (laughs) well it's just insane that this is his only nomination ever Mm -hmm. and the fact that we're getting two deserving performances in the same year is also kind of unfortunate for him because he could only get nominated for one being both leading performances I think it's close like yes the sting is the bigger and better performing film so that makes sense but I think he also plays off Barbara Streisand really well in the way we were and it is very much their film so I would maybe lean the way we were but he has great charismatic performances in both movies and I will say yes we're getting to smash your pass in a second but the way that he sprints in full suits in the sting that nomination is okay by me yeah I actually am gonna go with the way we were here I think that he's great in the sting I actually think that he and Paul Newman have better chemistry than he and Barbara Streisand do But I feel like he's great as Hubble because in the way we were, that character, he has to be so... You have to understand why Barbara Streisand's character would be drawn to him. Obviously, it makes sense that she would be drawn to him because he looks perfect in the movie. (laughs) Like, preppy, waspy man. Mm -hmm. But he's so, like, withholding and... I don't know. He's a very complicated character There are so many layers underneath that character that he taps into that I feel like if it were another actor, he might not necessarily be able to do. I also think sometimes giving a great performance in a movie that maybe isn't as strong is harder (laughs) than pulling one off in a movie that's really well directed, that has a more well-written character. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I feel like what he does in The Way We Were is a bit more impressive to me, but I do love both. Would you have preferred Warren Beatty, who they had contacted first, or Robert Redford? For the way we were? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I love Warren Beatty as well, but I would still go with Redford there. He's perfect. He's the the perfect choice for that character. It's surprising that Streisand and Redford didn't get along on set. Like There was so much drama going on with him saying, oh, she's going to direct herself and needing so many takes and just... Lots of conflict, which you don't see on screen. I think with the movie, Streisand's character is not well written, but I think she plays her well. 
the movie is so doused in politics that I think it gets wrapped up in them. And then there's the romance, but that's probably why it didn't fare as well at the Oscars. But I do like Barbara's nomination. The politics in that movie, though, are so flat. Like, they're kind of reduced to stereotypes. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, he's this establishment figure with these friends who are more conservative and she is this radical on campus (laughs) like it's just i feel like they're they're playing with stereotypes in such a way that i completely understand why this works for people my mom loves this movie and i watched this when i was like 10 years old for the first time because my mom loves the movie and i just remember thinking robert redford was one of the most beautiful men that i'd ever seen like i thought he looked like a a human ken doll (laughs) i remember But yeah, it's I think if you if you try to dig into it a little bit, it kind of falls apart. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, just as a movie on its own, like as a romance for the time, it totally works. Our next question we got from Isabel. In addition to The Sting, what other acting performances would you have nominated Robert Redford for? Like you said, it's absolutely crazy that he only has one acting nomination. That's mm-hmm. it. I think that's a good, like, trivia question to stump people. Like, mm-hmm. how many acting nominations does Robert Redford have and what is the one for? I don't know if you would necessarily guess the sting or that it was just one. I have right. quite a few. Um, I tried to limit myself to five additional <laughs> <laughs> movies. I went with Three Days of the Condor, which is one of my favorite political thrillers starring Redford and Faye Dunaway. I highly recommend it. It's one of those excellent paranoid government thrillers so good the coats are amazing he's and he's wonderful in it i think all of these movies that i'm going to mention i just really really like him and he i think he's doing really interesting work the next one would be the candidate i would also go with all the president's men i love him as woodward Mm -hmm. i think he's fantastic in that movie everything that he's doing when he's on the phone when he's you know, trying to contact sources when he's talking to Ben Bradley, when he's playing off of his relationship with Carl Bernstein. I think it's just one of my favorite films of all time, and he gives a great performance in it. Then two more recent ones, I would go with All is Lost. I think he was fabulous in that, and I was so sad that he didn't get an Oscar nomination that year. And one of my favorite movies that does not get enough credit, The Old Man and the Gun, I loved this movie. It felt like such an old school throwback. And it's a David Lowry film. He's wonderful in it. Sissy Spacek is in it too. So I would go with those five. But there are plenty of options. I need to watch that for some reason. I think I always thought it was a Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, no. It has much more humor. The tone of it, I think, is Uh more your speed than a Clint Eastwood movie. I'll say that. Um, I also would have said All is Lost. I remember thinking back to that season like that was a big push for him and probably his last big push for another nomination before that I agree with all the president's men there are some supporting ones too like even out of Africa I could have seen for how well that movie did the natural and I guess with Butch Cassidy neither of them were nominated there either would you have nominated Newman or Redford here or there oh I always forget you know that's another thing I always forget that they weren't nominated there. It's hard because I do love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as well. Like, that was a movie that I grew up with that mm-hmm. I really liked. Also, George Roy Hill. I think I would have nominated them there, too. Actually, both of them. Why not? 
Yeah, I think for how well this movie did, only his nomination for acting is just kind of surprising. It is weird, especially because Newman at that point had been nominated before. Mm -hmm. So for him to not get included... I mean, I think a lot of it for for a good portion of the film does feel like Redford's story. And he is kind of, even though it's a partnership, he is sort of leading it in a lot of ways. This could also be a personal problem, though, because once Newman does show up, all of my energy is just transferred over to him. (laughs) In every way. In every way. I mean, I just, I love Robert Redford with my whole heart. I think he's a wonderful actor. I love his directorial works but there's something about newman that's just a little bit more compelling to me on screen Mm -hmm. there's such a coolness to him and Mm -hmm. he's sort of in this mentor role which i feel like is just another factor that usually adds to somebody's oscar nomination so he has all of these like older qualities going for him i do really like him here too yeah it doesn't really make sense to me I just can't imagine looking, like, knowing Paul Newman was in a movie and not wanting to vote for him. I mean, or Redford, too, for that matter. But maybe voters had different standards than than me. Maybe they were considering other things. Another thing could have been just the best actor category this year. So we had Jack Lemmon winning for Save the Tiger. Like I mentioned, I think this was a bit of, like, for his time. Because he had lost before for wilder, big wilder performances. And who doesn't love Jack Lemmon? I mean... yeah. And our other nominees here, we had Marlon Brando for Last Tango in Paris, Jack Nicholson for The Last Detail, Al Pacino for Serpico, and Robert Redford again for The Sting. And these are all great, so maybe it was just stacked and they didn't want to nominate two for The Sting. Yeah, I think that's that's probably part of it. Nominating two in lead also, I think, is always complicated for the Academy. It's kind mm-hmm. of rare when they do that even if it's justified or if those are the the right categories. So I think that's right. I love Jack Nicholson in the last detail. This is the Nicholson era that I love. This is the best, the best Nicholson era. Good. Yeah. I mean, Nicholson in the 70s, you just can't really touch him. He's sort of on another level, I think, with who he's working with, with the roles he's taking. He brings this sort of indie sensibility to every project that he's on where you feel like you're I don't know you just I I love him in this time period I love Mm -hmm. the the style that he brings so yeah I love that nomination Al Pacino and Serpico we will talk about more when we get to Smasher Pass (laughs) both of them yes Mm -hmm. and then we had a question from Calvin who asked given the overall love for the sting do you think Robert Shaw was close to getting a nomination Yeah, I think he was. Again, the whole shocking part about no more acting nominees applies for him as well. With how he has to handle what's happening in the story, too, I think he does phenomenally, like, being conned until the very end. And I think his character is a little too believing of what Redford says to him on the train earlier on. But I think he plays a lot. He's a lot of fun to watch. And his acting, especially when he gets frustrated with what's happening in the story, is really deserving. Yeah. Yeah. Love Robert Shaw here. Whenever I think of Robert Shaw, I always think of Jaws first, which comes after The Sting, of course. But, I mean, he had already been nominated for an Oscar at this point for A Man for All Seasons. So it's not like he was an unknown to the Academy or like he hadn't gotten 
recognition in some way before. So I do kind of find the lack of nomination here in supporting surprising, considering how well the sting did everywhere else. He was probably number six. I would assume mm-hmm. he was very close. So going through these nominees here, we had John Houseman winning for The Paper Chase and the other nominees, Vincent Gardenia for Bang the Drum Slowly, Jack Guilford for Save the Tiger, Jason Miller for The Exorcist, and Randy Quaid for The Last Detail. I have not seen Bang the Drum Slowly. I have not done all of my homework for 1973. That is one I'm missing. Maybe I'll, I'll return to it. But yeah, I The Paper Chase was one of my least favorite movies that I watched looking at Mm -hmm. 1973. John Houseman, again, I understand why he won here. It sort of makes sense in the grand scheme of things. I think that, you know, he was a bit older. He hadn't won before. And he was someone who had been working for a really long time and was really known, I think, for his stage presence and for his theater background. So I understand that, but I I think I would have made room for Robert Shaw here. I do li- I like him in the Sting. I feel like he's he's such a good adversary for them too. Like even though yes, he gets easily tricked, I think it's it's just fun to follow along with that in the story and he's mm-hmm. so believable in that role. Yeah, and I feel like he even has more range than what John Houseman does in the paper chase. Like that is just one note to me. I agree. Bang the Drum Slowly is a baseball film, so maybe you will like it. I It's so funny how I have this reputation know. for loving sports movies. <laughs> You're the sports <laughs> enthusiast. I know. <laughs> I will I'll watch it. I'll add it to my list. I just wanted to rewatch so many other ones and check out additional <laughs> new ones before I watched Bang the Drum Slowly. This was really fun. Like having Letterbox too, you can look at the most highly rated for the year and then comparing that with like top box office films. I was exposed to a lot more than what I probably would have if I just looked at this list. But yes, I didn't see every nominee here. But our next question came from The Futurist. He asked, would you have rather lived in the Sting era or the American Graffiti era? For me, I would say American Graffiti. I would much rather live in like California, summer 1962, <laughs> Modesto than Great Depression, Chicago. I think like there is a, a romantic quality to that time in the movie and a, a nostalgia for it. But I love the music in American Graffiti and I love the mm-hmm. production design and the setting that it makes that era, I think, feel really, really enticing to me. I love it. Almost the entire movie takes place driving down the main strip of this town. I'm like, how are people having full conversations out of their window? I was so scared someone was going to crash. But that was like, what happened at the time? I love that, though. Uh, I mean, living in the Depression is not great. So, I mean, I feel like American Graffiti is the more practical answer anyway. And I think the movie itself, like you said, romanticizes, not really glorifies the periodness of it and the time. But the sting doesn't necessarily look down on it too much. I mean, some of the some of the set design does, I think, in where Redford is and what happens to some of the characters. But yeah, I would probably lean American Graffiti too. I just love also the idea of a drive-in and you know, getting your burger eating, like we have some of those in the Midwest. And it's fun to go back to that, like, you know, putting the tray on your window and sitting and eating, listening to the radio. It's a, it's a nice throwback. 
That made me so nostalgic for that. It made me want to like be back in Ohio for the summer <laughs> and not here. Oh. And so just wrapping up our conversation on The Sting, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I'm going to go with screenplay. I really like David Ward's work, and I feel like it's a really snappy script that really incorporated a lot of fun elements. And I think just in terms of a Best Picture winner, I do really like that as well. So I think this is a good place to award the film. But what would you give it? I would give it screenplay too. Not to be boring, I would choose the same thing. I feel like the tone, I think, is just spot on throughout the movie. I really like the tone. I think there is this lightness to it. There's a playful quality to the script, but when it does need to get a bit more violent or a bit more serious, I mean, it is dealing with the mob during (laughs) the Great Depression, it does that. And I think it, it is really complex without ever losing the audience, which I think is a hard thing to do. So I would go with screenplay. So we asked listeners on Twitter to rank the Best Picture nominations of 1973, And the winner overall was The Exorcist, if you look at the ballots preferentially. Back then, they didn't use a preferential ballot, so The Sting won. But I still think today, if you had Academy voters vote, The Sting would win Mm -hmm. outright and on a preferential ballot. I feel like it would still be the winner. Even knowing what we know about The Exorcist and Cries and Whispers and how they hold up, and that they're considered some of the greatest pieces of cinema, I still think if you put these movies in front of Academy voters, I think they would pick The Sting. It's just such a crowd pleaser, like you said. But with our listeners, the winner was The Exorcist. How would you rank the Best Picture nominees of 1973? So I would put The Exorcist first, and then The Sting. They are really close for me, but I totally agree. Like, I don't think The Exorcist is winning today. Like, yes, we have The Silence of the Lambs having won, but The Exorcist just goes there. And it's really Mm -hmm. interesting because George Cukor basically led a negative campaign against The Exorcist winning for being how scary it was. Not my king, George Cukor, letting me down. (laughs) (laughs) How sad. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Yeah, he threatened to resign from the Academy if it won Best Picture. Oh, my God. So scandalized. (laughs) That's so sad. But see, like, voters, I think are still like that today. You know they would. I'm just saying. I agree. It's just really polarizing. And those Mm -hmm. problematic films find ways to not win. But anyway, I would put American Graffiti next at third, Cries and Whispers at four, and A Touch of Class in last place. So I would have The Exorcist first. I love The Exorcist, and we released it again in our feed this week on Twitter, but we did an Oscar Rewind on The Exorcist and Carrie, a fun little spooky Oscar Rewind. So we do a deep dive into The Exorcist on that episode. Please check it out. It was very fun. But I love The Exorcist. It's one of my favorite horror movies ever made. And I think it is the best horror film ever made. So I would definitely rank it number one. After that, it gets very tricky for me. I actually would go with American Graffiti second. This is blasphemous to people and I'm putting it above Cries and Whispers. But this is just personal preference of the films that I like and what I would watch again. Then I would do Cries and Whispers. I think... Cries and Whispers is brilliant, and it is one of Bergman's best films, top to bottom. It's incredible. What he does with the color red, how 
painful this movie is and what these women are going through, then I'm going to put The Sting at four and A Touch of Class at five. But again, I think the top four are really strong. Do you feel like if Cries and Whispers were released this year, would it be the quote-unquote international pick that gets a Best Picture nomination? Ooh, I don't know. I think it's, it's so challenging because it really is rare and sort of wild that it even got a Best Picture nomination back then. Because mm-hmm. I think I totally understand, too, people who have Cries and Whispers as their favorite Bergman It's not my favorite Bergman, but I mean, I have so many movies of his personally that I would put in Best Picture, including this one. And it's just, it's crazy that they they went for it and they put it there. Looking at what happened at the Oscars that year, like it is, it's the one where, you know, like Bergman, celebrated international director, he gets into Best Director, this finds a place in other categories, like cinematography. I think the sad thing about Cries and Whispers, besides the actual content of the movie, Mm -hmm. which is very sad. The sad thing about its awards performance to me is that we still see this today, that international cinema does not translate to the actors branch of the Academy. The best performances of the year, bar none, some of them are in Cries and Whispers, and they are nowhere to be found in the acting categories. So it's just another thing that you see where it's like Bergman's films, if you look at them over time, so many of the things that are celebrated, it's its direction, it's cinematography, it's in categories like picture sometimes, and in international feature, screenplay. My favorite Bergman story, though, is that he rejected his screenplay nomination for Wild Strawberries because he doesn't like the Oscars. <laughs> but it's never in acting, and actors mm-hmm. are so important and oftentimes it's performances by women like Lee Volman who are just giving mm-hmm. some of the greatest performances you've ever seen on screen and they're either not getting nominated or they're not winning so that's something that has persisted for 50 years right the, the foreign you language know. or international performances not being recognized Well, since we're talking about Cries and Whispers, let's do some of the questions. Let's answer some of the questions that we got about that movie. So Sam Meltzer asked, Cries and Whispers managed to get a Best Picture nomination, yet Fanny and Alexander failed to get one. Why is that? They basically got the same set of wins and nominations, except the latter actually got more. And then we also got a question, similar question from Philip Bown, who asked, why did Cries and Whispers make it into Best Picture? And how do you rank it in Bergman's filmography? In terms of why Fanny and Alexander didn't make it, it should have been there. Yeah. I think just that's it. This was the year of Terms of Endearment. I like the big chill being here. I don't know about how you feel about The Dresser. We've kind of talked about this, but the right stuff you told me to see in Tender Mercies. Fanny and Alexander being just like the celebratory director nomination here is not enough. No. <laughs> Honestly, it could have won for me, and we've covered this on the pod before, too. Just an outstanding film and television series, but it's kind of surprising that Cries and Whispers did better at the Oscars because, yes, it's so visually stunning, but it's also very traumatic, and it's not only hard to watch because of Bergman's style, in a way, I think, just for audiences, but the subject matter is very hard. So... It really is surprising to me. 
But at, even at that time, Bergman had been celebrated or and nominated before. I mean, he just won a few years prior the Irving G. Thalberg Award. So the Academy loved him, and it's probably why he did so well at the time. That was his next movie after winning to have been nominated, Cries and Whispers. Yeah, what do you think? And would you have given either Cries and Whispers or Fanny and Alexander a win? Fanny and Alexander is my favorite Bergman movie. I know we're going to talk about rankings, but Mm -hmm. I love Fanny and Alexander so much. I think it is a perfect movie, and it is one of the greatest explorations of autobiographical filmmaking in history, period. It's incredible. I love it. (laughs) I think it's interesting, though, that you brought up Terms of Endearment, because with Terms of Endearment and Cries and Whispers, you have two very different depictions of cancer, and of women reacting to women in their family having cancer. So it's interesting to watch those. I mean, I would not recommend that as a double feature unless you want to go through like two Kleenex boxes and have just a day of pain. But it's interesting to consider them sort of as Mm -hmm. opposite sides of the same coin in how they tackle that subject matter. Because Cries and Whispers, I think, is much more artful and visceral in its rage and how it depicts feminine rage and anger and the horror surrounding death and surrounding cancer. I think it's it's much more interesting in that way, even though I personally do love terms. I think, though, a big part of it is that Cries and Whispers came out in the 70s. And in the 70s, audiences and Academy voters had a stronger appetite for challenging cinema. That's how the industry was. Audiences liked ambiguity. They liked things that were challenging and tricky and that left them in a space to really have to think about what they just experienced, sometimes for days on end. When we get to the 80s, where audiences are not as interested, like if you look at the winners of the 80s and the nominees and what was popular at the box office, the blockbuster and the films of that time were much more sentimental they were much easier watches and like even something like terms of endearment which i consider a very difficult watch is much more straightforward in its themes Mm -hmm. and its messages everything like that so i feel like it's the time i mean fanny and alexander came out at a time when voters liked different types of movies already and cries and whispers might have just had an easier road Yeah, and then afterwards, he had The Magic Flute, Face to Face, and Autumn Sonata, which were all nominated. He also had The Serpent's Egg, which wasn't, but those other three all being in the 70s getting nominations, I think, adds to what you just said. And I guess with the ranking, I say he's hard to watch for audiences, and maybe I'm just saying that about me. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Because, yes, he is such an important director, and... I feel like film classes a lot of times feature a lot of his works. Mm -hmm. And that's where I saw some of them, which definitely helped. But otherwise, they can be hard to interpret if you're just doing a retrospective on Ingmar Bergman. But I will say again that I love Fanny and Alexander. That will always be my number one. I'm not low on Cries and Whispers. That's actually probably my next one. And yes, I have a lot of his to get through still. But to get through. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and then probably the Seven Seal and the Virgin Spring. I think I have yet to get to Wild Strawberries and then Persona. Yeah, what about you? What's your 
ranking. Have you seen most of his films? Yeah, I've I've seen a number of them. I also IFC was doing a series two summers ago, and I saw a lot of them in theaters. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time watching them at home because they're so dark that I sort of have to force mm-hmm. myself to go into a dark room and just knock it out and watch them. I I do love him though. I think he's he's fantastic and just a master master filmmaker. Fanny and Alexander is my favorite. I think you would like Wild Strawberries actually which is my number two. It's a really, really beautiful film, and it's his warmest, I think. Bergman's a very cold okay. filmmaker. He he likes his distance. Swedish. He likes that that wall. <laughs> and um, this one is not that way. This one is, it's, it's really beautiful. I love it a lot. And then I would probably do Persona and then The Seventh Seal. So I would say Cries and Whispers is fifth for me top five which is still really good mm-hmm. but it's a, it's the one that i have the most challenges with it's just it's a really really hard watch for me and not one that i've ever returned to i saw it once in theaters and said that is enough i can appreciate this and admire it but i will never go back because it was so difficult for me it just made me so mm-hmm. unbelievably sad and then one more question we got about this movie from Connor Lawrence, he asked, other than his Oscar-winning work for Cries and Whispers and Fanny and Alexander, what is your favorite cinematography work by Sven Nyquist? Well, we have to say, we just have to throw it out there that Fanny and Alexander and Cries and Whispers, two of the greatest wins in the category's history, maybe. Mm-hmm. The use of red in both films is just unbelievable. And I think I would say other Bergman's persona, definitely, and Through a Glass Darkly. I really like how that one is shot. His other nomination for a non-Bergman film was The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is beautifully shot. This is a very hot Daniel Day-Lewis film. Recommend. And I would go with Crimes and Misdemeanors. This isn't what I would think of necessarily as your go-to pick for a cinematography win or nomination, but I think his work here adds so much, so much to a film that I would consider a masterpiece. Yeah, it's fun to look at Nyquist's career because he did so much of Bergman and Woody Allen, but then he does Veer later on in his career. He does What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He does Sleepless in Seattle, and he even does Mixed Nuts, which is this like quirky, weird Venice Christmas comedy. My uncles like love this movie, so they showed it to me. It's like crazy. I have never seen this. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a campy Steve Martin movie. It's fun. I would watch it. Yeah, definitely watch it around Christmas time. So what we did this time, instead of going through all five Best Picture nominees, we're sharing our personal top fives from 1973 that we would nominate for our personal Best Picture list. I'm going to say at the top that I know I complain sometimes about years of 10, that we don't need 10, that 10 are too many, but I had a very hard time narrowing this down to five, and I could easily pick 10. I did watch a lot of movies from this year. It was great. I would still have The Sting and The Exorcist in my, I guess it's like a mix of a personal top five and what I would want in Best Picture, because those work. Paper Moon, absolutely. It not being here for picture is really upsetting because I love this movie. I also really love Day for Night, which is really weird to me because it was nominated in two separate years at the Oscars. So it won this year for foreign language film. And then the following year, 
It was nominated for three Oscars, including Supporting Actress, Director for Truffaut, and Original Screenplay. So I'm assuming the eligibility dates were just different, but I really love this movie, and it's like this meta film on filmmaking. So I love that Truffaut got nominated. Yes, he is such a pillar and an auteur, but I would have nominated that for picture if like Cries and Whispers and Bergman are also getting nominated. And my number five is just kind of a swerve because this year we had the potential for Glass Onion to get in. It didn't, but Ryan Johnson mentioned that The Last of Sheila was a big inspiration and it's basically the same movie. I really love The Last of Sheila. And I think for a mystery, a murder mystery in the 70s, like the route that this movie takes, I was just so surprised by. Have you seen this? I actually have not seen it. No, I'll add it to my list. You really have to. Okay. It has so many great performances. I think the writing is outstanding. The location shooting and it is so moody like some of these moments are really scary and I think the twist at the end and finally the reveal it totally makes sense that Ryan Johnson loves this movie but yeah it's it's wonderful so yeah I would put that in as my fifth nominee great I will definitely watch it we can talk about our overlap in a second but I'm gonna go through my honorable mentions <laughs> so my six through ten I love Day for Night. I agree. I think this is just a beautiful film. I love the farce of it and how Truffaut is in the movie. It's just really playful and just perfect French New Wave. I also have Mean Streets on my list, which is Martin Scorsese's film from 1973. It's not his first feature. He had Boxcar Bertha and Who's That Knocking at My Door before, but this is kind of his first big movie that he premiered at New York Film Mm -hmm. Festival. 50 years ago, and it has so much of his signature already in it. Like, Goodfellas can't exist without Mean Streets. The Irishman can't exist without Mean Streets. Casino. It really showcases his amazing partnership, decades long now with Robert De Niro. And it has all of this really strong Catholic imagery. I think it's it's really good. And especially for an early film in his career. I also have Badlands, the Terrence Malick movie with Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen. I think this is just an incredible first feature and its picture of romance and violence and Americana imagery. It's like very, very haunting to me. And I think the Sissy Spacek Mm -hmm. performance is incredible. I would put The Sting in there. So it's not in my top five, but it is in my top 10. And I would also put Cries and Whispers is my number six. So I am happy that it made it into the Best Picture 5 because, again, Mm -hmm. I think it's a masterwork and it's just so rare that films like that get recognized in Best Picture. My number five is American Graffiti, which I don't think you liked as much, right? No, but I'm just not as high on, like, Snapchat movies either. Like you explained about the movie, it's taking place in one night. It's about all these characters in... A really important moment for them before they potentially go to college and some of those decisions and actions manifesting in certain ways and conversations too obviously but yeah I mean I I think it was harder for me or maybe I was just expecting something different based on what I had heard before about the movie yeah I I really love it but again also you know I love like slice of life movies right. from this time period or that feel 
like, I don't know, this movie, I think, influenced so many films that I really love. Two of the films in my top five were major influences on Paul Thomas Anderson. So maybe that is part of it as well. Um, the American Graffiti font at the beginning is the same as the font from Licorice Pizza. So that made me smile when I saw that. I really mm-hmm. do like that. But yeah, I think, you know, in addition to being, I almost think it's underrated at this point. I mean, I know people cite American Graffiti and its importance historically, but I do think it's kind of written off as this high school nostalgia movie when I think it's a lot deeper than that. And I think that it's fun to see this cast, this like big ensemble cast. They're so young. Ron Howard is credited as Ronnie Howard, which is just Mm. so crazy to see that. But Richard Dreyfuss, like Kurt and Steve are very different characters, but Mm -hmm. it sort of makes sense like why they would interact. And I love just the, the sprawl of it. Like there are so many characters that interact with each other that are all experiencing sort of the same things in their in this particular point in their lives as they're about to leave their home and everything that they've known behind and what that means what their existing relationships mean but i also like its use of american iconography like the cars in the mm-hmm. movie are really interesting to me and how it almost feels more focused sometimes on the objects than on the characters. That's, I think, a really compelling thing about the movie that that I always come back to. And I always think about the politics of the time and how these characters just aren't really interested in that. Like, they can live outside of that for the time being. But then when we get to the very end of the movie, and I'm not going to spoil it, but, like, you find out what happens to the characters after the credits roll. And it's very moving in knowing what what they could and couldn't necessarily leave behind and how they're forced into a new era and how they can't be indifferent anymore. So yeah, I, I really, really like it. And the soundtrack is great. It's also my mom's favorite movie. This is the second time I've mentioned her, but Ooh, it is my wow. mom's favorite movie. So I had to put it on my list. <laughs> and then my number four and my number three are overlaps. So my number four is Paper Moon. My number three is The Exorcist. So let's talk about Paper Moon and why you like it. I think it's just, it is such a warm hug of a movie. It always makes me very emotional when I watch it, but it's one that I like to return to too, because I think Peter Bogdanovich is so good at making these films that feel perfect for the period where they're being watched. So whether that's the 70s when this came out or even today, and the period that he's capturing. So it feels so retro, like it was actually made during the Great Depression somehow. I think that's that's a skill that many filmmakers don't have. I think that Tatum O'Neill's wonderful as Addie. She's like this little Huckleberry Finn, mm. Scout Finch character. And I think, you know, it, it has this really beguiling lightness to it in the midst of this really dark period in American history. So I really, really like it. Definitely holds up as like a newer black and white film for me too. And embarrassingly, I didn't know that it was a father-daughter movie until after I saw it, which oh my gosh, added so many layers to their dynamic together and maybe why it works so well. But I love, love her personality throughout the movie. Like she was given an actual fun child role to play and not only does she have so much charisma but 
I think the journey we go through her emotionally to throughout the movie just is so deserving. They kind of use transporting her to her family as a MacGuffin to this relationship we get between, I mean, father and daughter in real life, but I think it's still father and daughter in the movie, and they never really say it explicitly. Obviously, it's implied over and over, and I think by the end you assume it is so, but I love the script. I love a lot of the supporting performances, too. I mean, I mentioned Madeline Kahn earlier, but she Mm -hmm. just has such an iconic scene on that hillside while she's trying to persuade Addie to get back in the car, and then just all the mischievous things that Addie gets up to in the film. This is really one that I can revisit over and over. And yeah, really just such a joy. It's wonderful. I love Addie when she charges the woman $24 for the Bible. That's for anyone wondering (laughs) out there about $423 in today's money. So we love our little grifter. (laughs) But I think that, yeah, the, the idea of childhood in the movie in general, it's just really savvy and aware with how it fits into the period. This girl, she's a little, a smoker. She's really precocious, and it just shows the shifting attitudes towards children at the time in a way that's really compelling. And I just, yeah, I I cry at the end every Mm -hmm. single time. It is a father-daughter story. I agree. In every way, it just, it feels like one, and it's why I love it so much. I just, when you see her with the suitcases, I can't help but cry. And for Paper Moon, quickly, with Oscars... I do think Madeline Kahn should have won supporting. She would have been my pick. Move Tatum to lead where she belongs. Mm-hmm. Love to Tatum. And The Exorcist, again, just greatest horror film of all time, I think. It's definitely in that conversation. It's just so unsettling as a movie. And every rewatch, I feel like you find something new. I love all the effects in the movie, the script. Obviously, like later on when things get really dark, there's a lot happening there and... Yeah, listen to our episode where we get into fun facts and behind the scenes production moments, which there are so, so many of them. But I love all those performances. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a bit when we have a few more questions on this movie. It's a brilliant movie. Then my number two is The Long Goodbye, which is a Robert Altman film. I think Elliot Gould is incredible in this movie as Detective Marlowe which is this character that is in Raymond Chandler novels and that we've seen many times before in cinema, on paper. You know, you think of Humphrey Bogart playing Marlowe and what he brings to the role. I think what Altman does here is he just, he holds a mirror up to all of the genre tropes of film noir, of the detective story, and he just breaks the mirror in front of you as you watch it. It's funny. It has so many narrative conventions that he loves the way that Elliot Gould feels so out of place in both time and space, the way that the period of the film, I think, feels it's so complex and at times confusing and how this character feels like he isn't necessarily part of anything, right? Is he, you know, a detective of the past transported to the 70s? Is he, you know, like, does this character really exist in this time? I feel like it's just, it's a film that, I think Altman films are always hard to describe it's more of a feeling that you get when you watch them but it's one of the best the best films that he's made and one of my favorites of the year for sure i highly recommend it and again this is one that really influenced pta 
And then my number one is my favorite movie of 1973, Don't Look Now. This is Nicholas Rogue's horror masterpiece, Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie. They play a married couple in Venice after they have this family tragedy, the death of their daughter. It's a movie that's all about dread and grief and how Venice works as a setting and almost as another character. But it's just, it's really disturbing. It's incredibly complex and innovative. The use of red, again, the editing, it's, I think, one of the greatest, greatest achievements in editing. Graham Clifford there. But it also has one of the best endings of any horror movie ever. I love it. Just some other listener questions we got. One from Matthew Anderson. He asked, despite the box office success and winning four Golden Globes, including Best Motion Picture Drama, how did The Exorcist not win Best Picture? And what was the reason American Graffiti went home goose-egged? So we talked about The Exorcist not winning Best Picture a little bit. I really think this is genre bias. I think that The Sting was just a much easier film for them to vote for. It's a crowd pleaser. Even though The Exorcist won some key awards and it was a movie that sort of shook the nation <laughs> when it came out, it just couldn't compete, I think, with the the ease and the nostalgia for a movie like The Sting. And ultimately, I think The Exorcist wins. Not at the Oscars, but just in film history, The Exorcist is a movie that is more well-remembered and appreciated overall with what it's done for the Mm -hmm. genre. So I think that it's really is just the horror bias and the fact that, like you mentioned, with George Cukor, like they just weren't going to vote for it. (laughs) (laughs) And with American Graffiti going home goose-egged, I actually thought a lot about this past year at the Oscars for this question. Like, thinking about when we talked about, like, how did Tar go home empty-handed? How did the Banshees of Inisherin go home empty-handed? And really, for American Graffiti, it was up against the sting in Mm -hmm. just about every category that it was eligible for a win in. And that is a really just, that's the worst place you can be in, I think, as a movie, going up against a movie that they clearly just really loved enough to give it multiple Oscars in a competitive year. Yeah, going up against everything everywhere or the sting in this case, you're just going to lose. And I think part of that was also because it was Lucas's debut. I mean, not necessarily because it was so beloved and was number three at the box office, but I think the sting just had a lot more support behind it in terms of previous nominees and nominations, literally just for the film. We'll we'll talk about Kenny Clark in a second. And our next question comes from Kyle. If Ellen Burstyn had won this year, does she win back-to-back or does Rollins or someone else win the next year? So this year, Glenda Jackson won Best Actress for A Touch of Class. Our other nominees were Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty, Barbara Streisand for The Way We Were, and Joanne Woodward for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. And then the following year, Burstyn won for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And the other nominees were Diane Carroll for Claudine, Faye Dunaway for Chinatown, Valerie Perrine for Lenny, and Jenna Rollins for A Woman Under the Influence. How close was Burstyn to winning this year? So it's hard because she didn't win a major precursor for The Exorcist. She was nominated for a Globe. She didn't win a major Critics Prize or anything. That, I think, is the the hard part. But do I think she should have (laughs) won? Yes, she should have (laughs) won. When I look at this collection of performances, Streisand is good in the way we were, but I think she's better in Funny Girl. Ellen Burstyn, what she does in The Exorcist, is unlike 
anything that we normally see in the best actress category. To win for a horror movie would be incredible. And she just has to play a mom who is dealing with her daughter being possessed. And she goes from being someone who isn't religious to someone who has to understand like that there is something greater that's out there that's influencing and impacting her daughter. And I don't know, the emotional levels of her performance. The Exorcist, for me, should have at least two acting wins this year. I would have given it to Burston and Jason Miller. Yeah, having mentioned supporting actor before, hands down, I would have given it to Miller over Houseman. I think with Actress, it's tough only because this was... One, the first Glenda Jackson movie I'd seen before. I'd seen her on stage years ago and obviously loved her. Like, that is... She's amazing. Her place. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> another level. But two, I did really like her in this movie. Even if her character was not written fully or that well, I think what she brings, there's just, again, that other level, that that depth, that power that she has with her acting style that just astonishes you on screen so i'm okay with her winning here i do like burston too but the next year i absolutely would have given it to gina rollins that role in that movie it's one of the best acting performances i've ever seen yeah i agree with you about glenda jackson i think she's good in a touch of class like even if i don't like the movie i think she is good in it and i don't think that she's a bad winner even though i would have voted for burston I do think, though, if Burston won here, it's so hard to win back-to-back. It's so rare that that happens that I do think it maybe would have gone to someone else. But maybe it would have gone to Faye Dunaway for Chinatown. Because mm-hmm. Chinatown was really big. Yep. So it's it's hard to tell, I think. I'll need to do a little bit more research into who I think the likely runner-up would be. But it's it's hard to tell. But I don't necessarily think Burston wins back-to-back. Even though she's also great and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Well, we'll have to revisit this next year. Yes, definitely. And then the Futurist asks, How do you feel about American Graffiti not being nominated for Best Sound after the groundbreaking work of Walter Murch that was later imitated in other movies? Example, The Radio Sounds' is Background. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Walter Murch is a genius. And again, another book recommendation. He wrote a book about editing called In the Blink of an Eye that I highly recommend. Um, he was a pioneer in the field. He he did the sound editing for The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, Touch of Evil. And the thing about this movie is that it is drenched in music from the period. It's all that like pre-Beatles sound and it is just baked into the screenplay, which I thought was really interesting. So in the American Graffiti screenplay, Lucas would start a scene with a song so you would know where the song was going to be and how the song sort of influenced the scene and what was taking place in the scene and there are 42 different songs in the movie and it really started the use of popular songs in movies period and he actually pioneered the technique of putting music into a movie not just in the edit but he re-recorded the music in the actual spaces where the characters would hear it. So he would mix the original clean recording of a song with the re-recording in the space. So he tells a story about how he did this for Lucas, where he recorded a two-hour DJ program, which is the radio show. So he had a two-hour tape of songs, commercials, 
the Wolfman Jack character talking in between. And then he played it with microphones and speakers for Lucas in a room and would rotate the mics and speakers, pointing them at each other in different directions. So it was this really atmospheric recording of a radio show. And then in the final mix, he synced them with soundtracks of the original recordings to throw them off on purpose. So they didn't sound perfect. They never sounded perfectly clean. And this is something that so many people have tried to do since, but he was the first one to really do it. And that's so cool. So he should have at least at least been nominated here. He's a genius. Just like go watch YouTube videos of him talking about his work. Read that book. It's just he has a wealth of knowledge and I just nerd out about things like this. So it's one of the reasons I think American Graffiti deserves to be recognized on a higher level maybe than it is. And then we had a question from James. Candy Clark was American Graffiti's only acting nominee. Who else would you nominate from that film alongside her? It is really surprising that she was the solo acting nom. It's such an odd performance to nominate because I think, I mean, outright you have Richard Dreyfuss, who is the lead, and maybe that's why he didn't get nominated. But I feel like a lot of these performances are so good. Mm -hmm. I also really like Cindy Williams. And then Mackenzie Phillips as the other like child actor. She's the younger Mm -hmm. one. Like, if you're going to nominate Tatum O'Neill, I would have loved to have seen her, too. She's so young in this. I would have nominated Richard Dreyfuss. And then Brian Sudfield asked, which film from 73 would you nominate for Best Picture, and which nominated film would you replace it with? I would replace A Touch of Class with Paper Moon. Even though Paper Moon wasn't my number one film from the year, it just feels like one that should have been a Best Picture nomination, considering the other like nominations and wins that it had. And its performance at the Oscars is just shockingly low. Like, I, mm-hmm. when I look back at this year, I expected it to have more. And was sad to be wrong. So I would do that. Yeah, that's mine too. That's like the easiest switch I would have made. And then just to wrap up, it can be the same, same answer if you want. But Morgan asked us, what's a film from 1973 that you feel didn't get enough recognition? Yeah, again, I think for me, it's Paper Moon. It just has everything. We've talked about this movie quite a bit at this point, but it's just really enjoyable. Yeah. I would say the same thing. I feel like Paper Moon does stand out on its own as a movie from the period that is just, it's such a delight. It's so easy to watch and also to recommend. Like if I were recommending a movie from this year to anyone, I would probably pick Paper Moon before I would pick Something like Don't Look Now or Cries and Whispers or even The Exorcist. Okay, I think it's time. We promised our listeners (laughs) we're finally here. If you made it, thank you. If you skipped ahead, well, welcome to Smasher Pass. We understand if you skipped ahead. This is always the greatest segment of the show when we decide to do it. (laughs) So how this works, this time we're going to be doing Smasher Pass with men from 1973 movies. We will read the character's name. We will have to decide whether we would smash or pass. First up, we have Al Pacino as Frank Serpico in Serpico. I would say smash. I don't know if I have with him before. We have a young, classic-looking Pacino, and you can't say no to that. Yeah, I would also say smash. Like, yes, he's a cop, but he never really totally fits in with them. And he also just looks great in this movie. 
Like the hair, I love Al Pacino and everything, but he, I think this might be one of his best looking roles, honestly. So next for The Sting, we have Robert Redford as Kelly and Paul Newman as Shaw. Smash, smash. These are really easy. I don't know what to tell you if you would say pass to either of them in this movie. Yeah, I grouped them together because it's a smash. This is easy. And from Mean Streets, we have Johnny Boy, played by De Niro, and Charlie, played by Harvey Keitel. I mean, smashing characters in Scorsese movies is probably not a good choice, but... Again, they both look great here. I'm going to say smash for both of them. Okay. I will smash De Niro because I love a young Mm -hmm. De Niro in any Marty movie. He's definitely like the bad boy of the movie. So that's just a bit more enticing to me. Charlie, I would actually say pass. In Papillon, we have Steve McQueen as Papillon and Dustin Hoffman as Louis Dega. So I'm surprised that I didn't bring this up earlier for Robert Redford, but I usually don't like blonde men. I can count on one hand, maybe the blonde men that I'm attracted to. It's like him and Alexander Skarsgård. Mm -hmm. That's really it. But I don't know. I mean, Steve McQueen is Steve McQueen. You have to smash. I don't know how you would pass on him either. So, and I, I don't know in this, in this movie too, I just, he's like rugged and I don't know. He looks like an early bond. He would be a great bond. Dustin Hoffman, I would pass, though. Oof, this is where we differ. So I'm going to say pass on McQueen and smash on Hoffman. Interesting. Okay. Like, yes, they're both sent away as criminals, but they're both also, like, the good guys, you know, as they're trying to escape. So I guess in that way, they could be smashable, but I I don't know. I'm not into the rugged McQueen as much as I am, like, the nerdy Dega. Part of the reason why I'm torn here, I think, is because the remake has Charlie Hunnam in the Steve McQueen role and Rami Malek in the Dustin Hoffman role. So I think it's hurting me a little bit there. (laughs) Next up, we have (laughs) Jason Miller as Father Karras in The Exorcist. This is a smash, and we definitely did this on The Exorcist episode. Yeah, we definitely talked about him. I will say it again. I think he's the original hot priest. Andrew Scott and Fleabag has nothing on Jason Miller. I'm sorry. I love when he's like running around the Georgetown track. I don't know. He's just like, he's a sad boy. And I love that. I love like the sad withdrawn type. I always gravitate towards them. Okay, next up for Badlands, we have Martin Sheen as Kit. I understand that people think he's hot in this movie. I can see it, but I'm going to say pass. I do not want to get tangled up in that web at all. I do not want to live on the road. I do not want to live in that like camp they have set up. I'm good. He killed her dad. Is... I I'm I can't go that far. <laughs> yeah, that is such an elaborate treehouse that they make. But once he killed the dad and she went with him, I was kind of checked out of the movie. Hmm. Like I understand what Malg is doing, but the relationships there, I was like, why would you ever go with him? He killed your dad. So, yeah, it's a pass for me. I just, I, mm-mm. I couldn't see a life with him or making a future or, like, it's it's so messy. Even just beyond that, like, if you're willing to go with someone who killed your dad, like, there has to be something else operating there. He has to have some sort of power over you yeah. that I cannot understand, and I don't want to try to understand it, and I don't, yeah, I don't want to be put in that situation. So I'm going to say pass. 
Next, we have Ryan O'Neill as Moe's in Paper Moon. I'm going to say Smash here. This is a blonde guy. I know. Testing me. And I think it's better to be with him than be against him because he will con you for all of your money. But maybe that's the danger, too. But I don't know. I'm going to say Smash. See, I was just going to say, like, I know I'm smarter than him. I don't think he would con me. He gets out-conned by a nine-year-old. So I... Yeah. Ryan O'Neill, though, always has that himbo quality to him in all of his movies to me, Mm -hmm. like in Paper Moon, in Barry Lyndon. And that's part of the draw and part of the reason, honestly, why he's always a smash. Next, from The Long Goodbye, we have Elliot Gold as Philip Marlowe. Number one smash on the list. Easy. This is like the, oh my God, when I first saw him in this movie, if I lived during this time period, I would have been obsessed with him. I would not have stopped talking about him, period, or in this movie. I feel like he's just so tall, his voice so deep. He's just, he's mysterious, but he also has a Mm -hmm. cat. I don't know. He is my type to a T. Yeah, I'm going to say pass. Um (laughs) He's just not my type, but I hadn't seen him as like a young actor. The only other time I've seen him in a movie is Ocean's Eleven, and he's amazing in that. He's a great but actor. That was so much after, yeah. So it was fun to watch him in this movie, but it's just not my type. I'm sorry. That's all right. Okay, for day for night, we have Jean Pierre Almont, Francois Truffaut, and Jean Pierre Leod. Well, I would smash the older one. Um, Jean-Pierre Amant, the one who's 62, you put in the parentheses. Um, I don't know. He's just like handsome, tall. He has it together compared to some of the other characters, I think, here. So I would say Mm -hmm. Smash here. Um, Even though he's an Aquarius, I would smash Francois Truffaut. Like, he's brilliant. I don't know. And I would pass Jean-Pierre Leo, the young one. He's just a a little slight for me, I think. Not my type. Um, yeah, he is a little messy. He's so erratic in the movie. Just like running around, changing things. Like, it's just a lot. Yeah, but I think that's also why I would say Smash for him. And he also is just, he's from a lot of Truffaut's movies and the star of The Foreigner Blows, which I love and where I saw him first. But I would also smash on Truffaut. But Almont, absolutely pass. I'm sorry. No, it's I'm okay. Sorry. It's all right. Draw the line. Next, we have Roger Moore as James Bond in Live and Let Die. Oh, we'll have to do a Bond one of these at some point. That would be fun. But I would say pass here. I know the older Bonds are iconic, but I haven't seen them. And yeah. I'm going to say Smash um, because he's James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> That's easy. That's it for me. Next, from the last detail, we have Jack Nicholson as Bedusky. Absolute Smash. Jack Nicholson in the 70s, easy. Mm-hmm. And he's shirtless a lot in this movie. Yeah, I think the performance is great. His character, I like it all. I'm into it. Smash. Next, we have Robert Redford as Hubble in The Way We Were. Smash. I was scared you were going to pass for a second, and I was going to have to yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, there are some scenes in this movie where I just... Like, how does a human look like that there also is a shot that i still remember from when i saw this movie when i was 10 or like around that age of it just lost it left a lasting impression on me as a a young child of his like tan freckled shoulder with her red nail like manicure 
on his shoulder. I was like, this is Mm. crazy. I don't know. Like, at the time, it really just was a lot for me to handle. And watching it now, it still is. So I would definitely say Smash. Yeah, the hair is just perfect, flawless. Mm Mm-hmm. The way that she, like, arranges it on his head at points, too. It's, oh, my uh, it's God. Great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Next one. Robin Hood from Robin Hood. <laughs> the animated fox? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Don't I don't want people to put me on a list or anything, but I would say <laughs> Smash. I think he's the, he's the hottest Disney animal. Ooh. Another one we have to do. He has, like, a swagger to him. He steals from rich people. Our politics are aligned. I would say smash. Yeah, no, it's a smash. It's an easy smash. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Next, we have Donald Sutherland as John Baxter in Don't Look Now. I'm going to say pass. I know, like, him and Elliot for you were immediate smashes, but, yeah, it's a pass. I know. It's like the towering, like, curly-haired 70s man. (laughs) It's like, I don't know what it is. But yeah, this is an easy smash. I think he also showed he showed us what he's capable of in the movie, in the the famous sex scene with Julie Christie. So I'm going to say smash. I love Donald Sutherland. And last but not least, we have Harrison Ford as Bob Falfa in American Graffiti. Smash. I love young Harrison Ford, too, of course. And it's just such a great surprise when he appears in this movie. And he just always has so much charisma to him and there's just this like there's something about Harrison Ford for me that I I really love in every movie yeah he's kind of this bad boy he's an idiot for Mm -hmm. racing him but I was really shocked when he showed up and it's just him driving but yeah this is a smash this is a great Harrison Ford there are so many great men on our list that we just went through and many more I'm sure I'm proud of myself for passing on a few (laughs) I really thought it would just be a straight, straight smash. But yeah, the Robin Hood was a nice curveball. I mean, we didn't have an animated feature category, so we had to include Robin Hood somewhere. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that was the perfect place for it, truly. Well, that was a lot of fun going through the movies of 1973. I'm glad that we did this. And I'm excited to see, you know, what years we decide to cover for our future Oscar Rewinds. Yeah, it was a lot of fun just going through and seeing a lot of films that were released this year and to see the difference between them and how they did and, you know, why they showed up at the Oscars or won. There's still some I have to get to, but overall, I really liked the movies this year. Me too. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be going back to the present, doing a 2023 release roundup. So these are going to be movies that have come out this year that we missed when we were covering the Oscars and that have come out since. So we're going to go through a lot of movies that we've seen, the good, the bad, the ugly, and we're going to talk about Ari Aster's new film, Bo is Afraid. Yeah, there have been a lot of movies released this year, like more so than I feel like from previous years. So we have so many to discuss. We'll probably be talking about as many as we did today. So I'm excited for that. Thank you all for listening so much if you made it this far. If you like our show, feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at OscarWildPod and bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wild. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.